All right, everyone, it's time to take out our Bibles. And if you will, open with me once again to the book of Jude, second to last book in your entire Bible. Jude, we start today at verse 3. Jude only has one chapter, and so we don't really reference chapter numbers in the book of Jude. Jude, verse 3 today, that will begin our text. Now, as we get into our text today, you're going to see Jude wanted to write about one thing. But he felt compelled to write to them about another thing. He'll say that. I I, I wanted to write to you about this, but I didn't. I felt compelled to to write to you about this. Kind of like how today I wanted to preach to you about how to lose weight for the glory of God. Because that's a sermon that I need to hear today after Thanksgiving. But I feel compelled to preach to you on God's word in the book of Jude today. That's our next text. Now, Jude is a book that... As you'll see again here in just a second, it's a book where he covers a a weighty topic. This is a weighty topic that he's covering. It's a serious letter. He wanted to be more jovial. He wanted to write to them a a happier letter. He wanted to, to write to them something nicer, but because of what was going on, he felt like he had to write to them something very, very serious. Many today in the church would look at a book like this, a book like Jude, and say, what? Why can't you just preach on something more happy? Why can't we just have a a nice, inoffensive, not make anybody feel uncomfortable sermon? Some people in that day might have even been saying, Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it... Sorry, I had to do that. If if I got through the whole book of Jude without doing that, I mean, what, what kind of preacher would I be? If any of you under 18 get that reference, come see me later and I'll I'll give you a prize. Okay, so here's our text and we need to get into it because we got a lot of work to do today. Jude, verse 3, and we're going to go down through verse 7. And you'll you'll see what I mean as we come to this text today. This is God's word. Jude writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And so you see what I mean here. It's a serious work. It's a serious letter. And he wanted to write about something else, but because of the circumstances, he felt it necessary. He says he wanted to write to them about their common salvation, but he was compelled to write to them to contend for the faith. Why? Well, because the church was under attack. And it was under attack from within. Did you see that in verse 4? In verse 4 he says, and verse 4 is really the whole reason why he's writing this letter about this, 
He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. They've crept in, crept into the body of believers, into the church. This reminds us of other places in our New Testaments that warn us of this very thing. For example, Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, where he says, Beware of false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They're false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. We're innocent. We're pure. We're white. But inwardly, on the inside, that's not what they are at all. They're ferocious wolves. Or Paul. Let's consider Paul talking to the elders in Ephesus. The elders in the church in Ephesus. But he's talking to them in Acts 20, verse 29. And Paul says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Or finally, I'd, I'd ask you to think about 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1, where Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. Now, just as a little side note, as we go through the book of Jude, we're going to be referencing 2 Peter over and over again. And it's because these two books, Jude and 2 Peter, are so similar, it's uncanny. It's absolutely uncanny. I don't know if you've ever noticed this reading through your New Testament. It is uncanny how similar 2 Peter and Jude are. If you remember, uh, months ago when we were going through Ephesians, we kept referencing Colossians to help us understand what was going on in Ephesians, because it seems like Ephesians and Colossians were two letters that Paul wrote kind of at the same time about many of the same things. So they've got a lot of similar material. That is true and even more so for 2 Peter and Jude. I would encourage you, perhaps sometime today or maybe sometime this week, to find time to, to read through all of Second Peter and all of Jude in one sitting. Try that as an exercise sometimes. Read through all of Second Peter and all of Jude in one sitting, and you will see so many similarities. It is absolutely uncanny. It is as if Peter and Jude sat down together, were discussing very similar problems happening in their very different areas, and saying, we, we need to we need to talk about some of these ideas together. I like what you just said, and I like what you just said, and we're going to include those in our letter. It's as if they did it like that. And so it's, it's just eerily similar. So you'll see us, you'll see me referencing Second Peter over and over again. But the point here that we were making is beware of false teachers, false prophets, these wolves who come in to your, 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 your gatherings, into the body of Christ. And they, they don't act like wolves on the surface. They act like sheep. They, they secretly creep in, as Jude says, undetected. That's why he's writing as he's writing. That's why he's saying that you have to contend for the faith. Because the church is under attack from within, from false teachers. Now notice in verse 4, in just that one verse, he says three things about these false teachers. Three things about them. Number one, they were long ago designated for this condemnation. Long ago, they were designated for this condemnation. Now, don't let that trip you up and, and start to think, oh, that, that means long ago, 
God decided that they would do this and they have no choice in the matter. That's not what it's talking about. The Greek word here means that it was predicted long ago, not it was predetermined. It was predicted long ago that this would happen and that their condemnation would come. In other words, Judah's telling us this attack from within does not take God by surprise. It might take the people in Jude's church by surprise, but it does not take God by surprise. It never takes God by surprise. No matter what the evil is, God can see everything before it happens. God knows everything before it happens. There is no form of evil that will ever take God by surprise. There will be times in this world where Satan thinks he is taking God by surprise. And in the end, God uses what he thinks is a cunning attack. He uses it as the very thing that destroys Satan and his works and his plot. In the end, Scripture tells us that's exactly what will happen. That Satan and all of his forces will be gathered for war against the people of God. And they call this the Battle of Armageddon. What's great about it is it's no battle at all. It never even happens. It never materializes because God just used what they thought was cunning. God used that to get them all together in one place. And then as they're all together in one place, he wipes them out with a thought, with a word, with a wave of his hand. And he defends his own people. And the battle never even takes place. And so this does not take God by surprise, is what Jude is saying. Second, in verse 4, notice what he says. He says, these are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. In other words, they use God's grace as a license to give in to their sinful desires. The desires of their flesh. They use God's grace to justify whatever sin they want to do. One of the main ways the gospel is distorted is that people use God's grace as an excuse to sin. God's grace is so amazing, it's appropriate for us to say his amazing grace. It's so amazing, it seems too good to be true, right? I mean, for those of us who know how sinful we are, if you're anything like me, when you receive God's grace, you, you think, this, this is too good to be true. How could I be forgiven of everything that I've ever done against the Lord? How, how could God bestow upon me salvation and let me become one of his children and give me the inheritance that he promises in Scripture? It's so undeserved. It seems too good to be true. But people distort that grace by using it as a justification to sin more, to remain in sin, to indulge in sin. And they, they, they think things like, well, God will forgive me anyway. That's his job. Or if we, if we can't earn our salvation by obedience, then let's just sin all we want because we're all getting grace anyway. Right? That's the distortion. That's the perversion. Paul dealt with this exact thing. And he says so in Romans 6. Starting in verse 1. Romans 6 verse 1, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, it's true that God's grace through the death of Jesus Christ is so powerful it can wash away any sin. But it is also true that this grace only comes to those who are repentant to those who are forsaking their sin, to those who are turning away from it and desiring to be free of it. 
You might struggle with sin. You might fall to it many times. But the question is, are you embracing sin? Or do you want to be free of it? Do you love sin or do you hate it in your heart? And so this grace of God does not come to those who are indulging in sin because they think they found a loophole in God's grace. Paul says any person who has truly received God's grace will hate sin and will want to be rid of it. And so if you still embrace sin and love it, it's likely you were never converted in the first place. That's what Paul is saying there. And so Jude is saying these people, they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. They use grace as an excuse to sin. And then finally in verse 4, the third thing that Jude says about them is that they deny, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They deny him. And so it's a twofold problem here. On the one hand, they use God's grace as an excuse to indulge in sin. On the other, they are rebelling against the authority of Jesus as their Lord and as their master. It is as if they are saying, the words of Jesus have a lot of wisdom. They tell us a lot about ourselves in this world we live in, but they're not binding commandments on our lives. This is so common today. So common today, this attitude of Jesus' words are not really rules for us, to be, for us to be following, as those fundamentalist conservative Christians say they are. Jesus' words are just more like nice suggestions. Besides, times have changed. We've evolved. It's much different today in our sophisticated, enlightened society than it was for those primitive, ignorant people in Jesus' day. This is so common today. And essentially what it is, is it's doing exactly what it says at the end of verse 4. It's denying Jesus as Master and Lord. Jesus is Savior, but he's not Master. He's not Lord. Do you begin to see the slippery slope here? The slippery slope that can eventually lead to someone or to a church as a whole walking away from God altogether. The slope starts when we use God's grace to justify whatever sin we want to indulge in. God is a God of love after all. And if he's a God of love, surely he would not condemn someone who wants to live in this type of lifestyle. Someone who wants to sin. We use God's grace to justify our sin, and then we begin to think of Jesus as just our Savior, but not Lord and Master. And then we begin to ignore parts of the Bible, or to reinterpret them, to suit our own desires. And from there, it is only a small step to ignoring the whole Bible completely. A very small step. It's not a leap. Once you ignore parts of the Bible to justify whatever you want to do, Once you ignore a part of it, it's a very small step to then throw away the whole thing. So if the Bible's teaching on sexuality doesn't apply to us, well then, why should its teaching on hell apply to us? Why why should we give any heed to its teaching on Jesus as the only way to God? We can throw that that, that out the window too. Why should we even care about any of its teaching on personal holiness of any kind? And further and further it goes, you see, until eventually you've walked away from the Lord altogether. Because with the Lord, we all know, deep in our hearts, it's all or nothing. 
It's, it's him all the way, or it's me. You can't serve two masters. You can't walk that, that tightrope in between. You've got to cross the line one way or the other. And everybody knows it. Everybody who's given any kind of serious look to the Bible understands that once you start disregarding even a part, a small part of God's commandments, it's a very small step to just throw them all out the window altogether. That's the slippery slope. That's how you start from being a Christian to being a complete unbeliever, to being a church, to being something that could not, absolutely could not be called a church of any kind. That's how it happens. And in our day, just to to make this crystal clear, in our day, the watershed issue in all of this is the LGBT agenda. It's the watershed issue in our day in all of this. It is the entry point, the doorway to so many people and so many churches walking away from the Lord. You You might wonder, some people do, you might wonder, why do churches talk about this so much? Why do they talk about homosexuality and transgenderism so much? Well, it's because in our culture today, this is the most prominent lie leading so many people away from Christ. It's the most prominent lie leading so many people away from Christ. It seems to be Satan's weapon of choice, at least in present-day America. It seems to be his weapon of choice. In other periods of time, churches would emphasize other things because they were more prevalent and this was less so. But in our day, this is Satan's primary method of attack, it seems, at least in this part of the world. And so why do we speak so much on this stuff? What does Jude say? You've got to contend for the faith. You have to contend. You have to fight for what's right. You have to fight for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That's why we speak so much on it. That's why we have to speak so much on it. Because if we don't, because it's too controversial, if we don't because it's too sensitive, the next thing you know, we're going to have all kinds of attack from within and all kinds of people walking away from the Lord. We have to contend for the faith. Now, Jude gives us three examples that serve as three warnings in our text today. Three examples and three warnings. They come successively in verses 5, 6, and 7. And the argument in these three warnings are all the same. They're all supporting one idea, one argument. And Jude is saying, if God did not spare these three groups, do not think he will spare those who seek to lead his people astray. Because God takes this very seriously. God is intensely serious about people trying to lead his children astray away from his son Jesus. And so let me show you the examples. Verse 5 is the first one, the first example, first warning, if you will. He says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Now, saving people out of Egypt, what's that talking about? We're going all the way back to Exodus and the ten plagues, right? The ten plagues and the people were saved from slavery in Egypt. But then it says that many of them were destroyed because they did not believe. What's that talking about? Well, where did they go after they left Egypt? First, they went to Mount Sinai. That's what our last sermon series was about. But after Sinai, 
And after that was all done, it actually comes after the book of Leviticus in the book of Numbers. Where does God send them? Straight to the borders of the promised land. It doesn't take them long. Straight to it. And then they send in their spies. And their spies come back. And what do they say? All except for Joshua and Caleb, they say, we're doomed. Those people in there are going to kill us. There's no chance. We have no chance against those people. They didn't trust the Lord. They didn't believe in the Lord. And because of that, many of them died. Some of them died right then and there in a war with those people of the land. You can go read about that story in Numbers 14. Some of them, many of them died in the wilderness wanderings for 40 years that God sentenced them to for not trusting in him. All except for Joshua and Caleb that were over 20 years old died in the wilderness wanderings. But did you notice in that verse, did you notice something interesting in verse 5? Did you notice this? Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. Jesus. Now that's interesting. That's fascinating. Now, if you're reading out of a different translation, your translation might say the Lord. The Lord. Some translations say the Lord. Other translations, the ESV isn't the only one. Other translations say Jesus here. Why are there two differences? Why is there a difference in translation? Well, the the New Testament is translated off of old Greek manuscripts that we have. We do not have the original piece of paper that Jude wrote this this letter down on. It's been lost or or destroyed in the providence of God. That's what's happened to every single New Testament book. We don't have any of the originals. And so we have to use this process of going back and looking at all the oldest copies and oldest manuscripts that we can, and then we translate our modern texts off of those. Now, we have so much confidence that our New Testaments are reliable and accurate to the originals because we have thousands upon thousands of these Greek manuscripts, and they are so old, so close to the actual time of the originals, that we can look at all of them and decide which is the best and most reliable and most accurate translation of the originals. But here there's, there's a variant. It's what we call a variant. In some manuscripts, there's Jesus, and in some manuscripts it says the Lord. I will tell you, the newest edition of the Nestle Elan Greek New Testament, they opted for Jesus here. And this is one of the most respected Greek New Testament editions out there, backed by lots of Greek scholars. But some of you right now are saying, okay, John, but all this is Greek to me, right? This is, this is just way, way heady stuff and whatever. Well, I understand that. But as you can imagine, when you come across a verse that says something like this, Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt. I mean, that happened over a thousand years before Jesus was born to Mary. Over a thousand years. And so if you've got a verse that says that, there's going to be people who say, wait a second, is that right? And if it's right, what are the implications? Because if this is indeed the right reading, the right translation, it confirms something that we see elsewhere in the Bible, namely that Christ the Lord did not just begin his work on the first Christmas many years ago. That Christ the Lord has been active all throughout the centuries, from the beginning of time and even beyond the beginning of our time, because he is an eternal being. We serve a God who is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? And the man Jesus of Nazareth started to exist when he was conceived in the womb of Mary. But when that happened, the eternal Son of God, Christ the Lord, took on human flesh. But before that, he existed. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
And scripture tells us even from the very beginning, even from creation, Christ, the Son, has been active and working all throughout the years of the Old Testament. And so we see that over and over again, and that makes sense. So I just wanted to point out that because that is a fascinating detail in the book of Jude. The second example he gives, remember we're on these three examples and three warnings. The second example he gives is in verse 6. What does it say there? The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority. Now, what's this talking about? It's talking about what we call today demons. Angels who have rebelled and been kicked out of God's presence, kicked out of heaven. They followed Satan in his rebellion. Satan used to be an angel, and he rebelled against the Lord. Did not accept what he was given, was not content with the position he was given. And so he and these angels who rebelled with him left their proper dwelling, They did not stay within their own position of authority that God had given them. That authority was not enough for them. And so they rebelled against their ultimate authority. And it says God has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Now that does not mean that that God is preventing demons and Satan from doing anything today. We know that's not true. What it means is they're on a chain. They're on a leash. Thus far and no further, so to speak. Until one day when God will release that chain... And he will throw them, Revelation says, into the lake of fire, the second death. And for all eternity, it is not only those who refuse to believe in Jesus who will be thrown into the lake of fire and tormented for eternity. It is Satan and his demons themselves who will also be tormented for all eternity. And that's comforting for us to know, those of us who are on the side of the Lord. And then finally, the third example, verse 7, is Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, it says they indulged in sexual immorality and they pursued unnatural desire. This is one reference to homosexuality in the Bible that most people just go right over. They don't even think about this reference to homosexuality in the New Testament, but it's right there, unnatural desire. That's what that means. But Sodom and Gomorrah, if you remember, back in around Genesis 17, 18, God destroyed this wicked city with fire and sulfur because it had become so ungodly that all the men of the city were pursuing homosexual activity, even with angelic beings that came to visit Lot and his family. And so Jude here, I think, makes a connection back up to verse 4 to those false prophets who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. And down here he talks about the sexual immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah. But these are three examples, and they're three warnings all pointing to the same thing. It's all really one warning, and it's this. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Judah's saying, if God did not spare his own people, the Israelites, when they refused to trust him, and if God did not spare his own angels when they rebelled against his authority, and if God did not spare the people of Sodom and Gomorrah when they embraced sexual immorality, how much more severe will be the punishment for those who creep into churches to lead people away from the truth of the Lord Jesus. That's how seriously the Lord takes this kind of thing. And so, for those of you who are not trying to creep into churches and lead people astray, what's the message for us? The message is, contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. We return now to Jude's purpose writing this letter. I'm going to kind of circle back around to verse 3. 
The church is under attack. The faith is under attack. So we must contend for the faith. And in verse 3, specifically, he says, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith once for all delivered to the saints. My late seminary professor and mentor, Jack Cottrell, titled his big, thick, systematic theology book. It's a a wonderful reference work, but he, he entitled it The Faith Once for All. The Faith Once for All, from this very text right here. What does that mean? The faith once for all. It was delivered once for all. Once for all. In other words, this faith, and we're not talking about faith here in the sense of like, we have faith, we believe in Jesus. We're talking about the faith, the word of God, the doctrine of God that is handed down to us from the apostles, the faith. That's what we're talking about. This faith is not a changing faith. It's not a changing faith. It was delivered once for all. It does not evolve with the times. It does not mean one thing to one generation and another to another generation. It is a faith that has been handed down to us. And we are entrusted with it. It's come straight from the Lord and from his apostles. And because of that, we have no right to mess with it. We have no right to mess with the message. We have no right to seek to change it to suit our own purposes. We must never soften it so that it is easier for modern people to swallow. We must not make it conform to us and our culture. No, we conform to it. We must not stand in judgment over it. No, it stands in judgment over us and we sit in submission under it. This faith is under attack. It's under attack, and so we must contend for it, Jude says. Contend, that means fight for it, defend it, strive with vigorous effort to keep it, and to keep it pure, and to keep it what it is. Now, when Jude says contend here, this does not mean that you need to be the guy on the internet, who is always looking to get into an argument about Christianity. This does not mean that you need to be the watchdog going around to every little comment section on any social media post and correcting anybody who says anything that you believe is wrong. That's not what this is talking about. What it's saying is the faith is under attack, not from the outside, but from the inside, from the inside. And so we need to be diligent to remain true to God's word. We need to read it, brothers and sisters. We need to read it and study it and know it enough that we'll be able to recognize false teaching when it creeps up. How are you going to know what's false if you don't know what's true? How are you going to know what's false if you don't know the truth? We need to pray for our elders, brothers and sisters, because our elders are the ones that the New Testament charges primarily with guarding the doctrine of the church. The elders are shepherds of the flock. That means part of their job description is protecting the flock. In Titus 1.9, it says an elder must know his word well so that he can teach right doctrine and he can also refute false doctrine when it creeps its ugly head. Elders have to be able to do this. And so we need to pray for our elders. They are shepherding this flock 
as a church, not just shepherding us pastorally, they're shepherding us doctrinally. We need to pray for them. But we all, not just elders, we all need to contend for the faith, Jude says. And so, brothers and sisters, be vigilant. Be vigilant against any idea that God's grace means we can just sin more. Be vigilant against any philosophy, any teaching that God is love, so he would never condemn anyone. God is love, so he would never call anything that you do wrong. God is love, so you can just be true to whatever's inside of you, whatever's in your heart. No, Jesus died, brothers and sisters, so that we would be freed from sin. Jesus died so that we would die to sin ourselves and live to righteousness. And so be vigilant against any idea that God's grace means we can just sin more. Be vigilant against any idea, any suggestion that Jesus is our Savior, but not our Master. Remember, Jude wrote this. Last week we looked at Jude introducing himself. And what does he say? Very, very first line of the letter. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, that's his brother. But he says, I'm his servant. And remember, the Greek word there, doulos, means slave. He's my master. He's not just my savior. He's my master and Lord. He has rights over me. You were bought at a price, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. And so we are his slaves. We are his servants. We are here to do his bidding and he can tell us what to do. And it is our duty to follow. And Jesus himself tells us anyone who does not submit to him as Lord cannot be his disciple. Sin was our old master. Christ is our new master. And his commands and his words are the absolute authority in our lives. And so let us press on to know our Lord and Master and Savior. And let us press on to know him by knowing his word. By knowing his word and becoming so acquainted with it that we can recognize false teaching the moment we get the first whiff of it. And let us stand firm in this faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Even if it means we stand against the current of most people in society today. Let us stand firm in our faith, even if it means people think we're weird. Even if it means people think we're losers. Even if it means people think we're hateful and a bunch of bigots. No matter what it means people think, stand firm. In this faith once delivered for the saints. Because you won't regret it once you've been there for 10,000 years. But you will always regret giving in. You will always regret giving up on this. Always and forever. I leave you with God's word through Isaiah. From Isaiah chapter 7 verse 9. Which says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Right now, we're going to take some time to pray. During this time, we encourage you each week, especially if this is your first week with us here at Columbia Christian Church, we encourage you during this time to pray silently and to respond to God, to speak back to him a response to what he has just spoken to you through his word. This is a time of response, and normally 
You know, we, we, we call the people who want to respond to God's word to come forward, but every single one of us needs to respond. Every single one of us has a response to make to God. And so that's what this time is for, this silent prayer time. And after we give you time to pray individually, then we'll come back together. And there may be those who need to respond to God's word in a public way. uh, And we give them the opportunity to do so after that. But first, let's pray.